Good morning. The scripture reading this morning comes from Hebrews 10, 26 through 39. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good to see you all. Uh, when my kids were younger than they are now, uh, they would sometimes complain that I gave them hard things to do. And uh, they were actually right. Uh, that's one of the perks of being a grown-up, right, is uh, all the chores that our parents gave to us, we get to turn around and give to our kids when they're young uh, so they can uh, develop character like we were told to. I would ask our children, uh, you know, to clean something really completely, like their room or the minivan that had Cheetos and french fries all over the bottom of it, or to do some work out uh, in the garden or the yard, and you could tell by the look on their faces, like, this is going to be hard, this is a lot, and they're thinking about the difficulty of it, and, and I would say, it's going to be challenging. But when it gets hard, what I want you to do is not say, Dad, it's hard and I can't do it and I quit. I want you to come and say, Daddy, it's hard and I need help. And that's true of our life in following Jesus too. But it's something which is so easy for us as Christians to get messed up and wrong about. We may not think it. Uh, we may not say it out loud, we may not admit to it, but it is easy for us to believe something like this, because we've heard something like this. God loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life, which is true, but as Americans, we take that to mean, because God has a wonderful plan for your life, that means success, and wealth, and accomplishment, and comfort, and ease. God has a good plan for my life that's going to mean no major interruptions and no significant problems and no real pain. 
Because God is on my side and God is good and God cares for me and God is powerful, therefore I really shouldn't experience any significant difficulty. All things should go well with me. Now, there's a kind of logic to that, right? I mean, it's not totally crazy because God is good and he does intend good for us. But ultimately, it's not true. And when we believe it's true and we want it to be true, we're often taken by surprise when trials and difficulty come. We can hardly believe it. We sometimes think, this is not what I signed up for. I I want to get out of here. I need to find an escape hatch. This is not working. I, I need to just get myself to a better situation. And the Bible points us to a Savior who prayed, Father, if it's your will, take this terrible trial from me. And the Father heard his son's prayer and said, no. The Christian life is good and true and beautiful and joyful and life-giving, but it's often hard. And that means we have to learn to endure. We need to be prepared to follow Jesus on a difficult path so that when the going gets tough, we don't stumble and fall away. Because it's a sad thing to watch someone that you care about decline spiritually, to see them make a serious mistake in their lives Maybe because they believed it was God's plan for them, they they quit a perfectly good job, or they bought a house they clearly could not afford, or they married someone that they clearly were not suited to be marrying. You see a friend expressing anger, or lust, or greed, or a desire for vengeance, or fall into some other very significant moral pitfall, or they maybe just drift away. They used to be regular in worship, they were involved in small group, they were part of a fellowship that urged one another on in in pursuing Jesus, but they just don't seem interested anymore. And you talk to them about it, or maybe you've heard a friend say, I'm not even really sure I believe that stuff anymore. I I can't live that. And maybe some of you have felt that way. Maybe some of you this morning are feeling that way. This letter to the Hebrews was written to people who were experiencing a great deal of hardship and trial and difficulty in following Jesus. And some of them, it appears from what we read in this letter, are thinking of giving up and wondering if it's worth it. It's gotten hard. And that's what this section in Hebrews 10 is about that we're looking at this morning. You haven't turned there already? Go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 26. God is the one who has graciously made us alive in Christ. He's saved us. He's bought us at the cost of his own son. He's brought us into his family. He's working out his purposes in our lives. So as we turn to this passage, can we trust that God will graciously give us what we need to endure through difficulty? 
What grace does God give us to endure? That's what this passage of Hebrews is about. And he says, remember, recall the former days, which gives the idea that they've they've fallen back somehow. They're not in a place they used to be. Maybe some of you can relate to that. You can look back over your life and you can see times where, boy, I was so much more engaged in following Jesus. I was so much more excited. I was so much more invested and and it was so much more priority than it is right now. And, And some people in this letter seem to be almost kind of teetering on the edge, like maybe they're going to go over and we're not sure how far they're going to fall. They profess faith in Jesus, they've given signs of loving him and following him, but it's hard and they're paying a price. As we saw last week from Pastor Tom, as as we draw near to God because of what Jesus has done, we do that together in a way that encourages us to spur one another on to love and good deeds on the basis of Jesus' finished work and the glorious access that he's provided to us, to the Father for us. And, And if we turn our back on that, what is left? The thing that's going on here, I I think, is this. I don't think very many people just wake up out of the blue one day and decide, you know what, I don't have a lot on my calendar. I think I'm just going to make a shipwreck of my faith and trash the whole thing. It happens a little bit at a time, doesn't it? I mean, that's how we end up in places sometimes where we didn't intend to be. A little bit at a time, a little wandering, a, a little step over here and a little step over here and a little step over here gradually drifting, and the writer of Hebrews is warning us against heading down a road that leads to a terrible destruction. Because there are some people to whom this letter is addressed who are potentially in danger of ending up miserable, empty, lonely, broken, collapsed in on themselves, but unable to be bought back to repentance as the writer says earlier. That's a warning that jumps out at us in this text. Did you hear that? Did those words grab you, these first verses? We need a gracious warning from God. The magician Penn Gillette is an atheist, uh, and he talks openly about that. He's not really antagonistic, but he tells a story of a man who came up to him after one of his shows in Las Vegas, gave him a little pocket New Testament. The man told him how much he appreciated the show. Gillette said he seemed very sincere. Told him a little bit of what it meant that God had sent his son to die for our sins and to rescue us and to redeem everything that has gone wrong with us in the world. And Gillette did not become a Christian. He still is not a follower of Jesus. He does not believe in heaven or hell. But listen to what he said about that interaction. If you believe that there is a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell, how much do you have to hate someone to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them about it? I mean, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was bearing down on you and you didn't see it and you didn't believe it, at some point I just have to jump in there to save you. And this is more important than that. Pendulet the atheist says. 
It is honest and wise and loving to warn people of danger. And the danger here is the judgment that our sins deserve because of God's righteous anger if we turn away from Jesus. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. We have this picture of God's wrath, God's anger, it's judgment. And he's not just a little angry, but passionate, a fury towards sin and rebellion that will consume adversaries. And and that does not mean to annihilate. It, It means really to swallow up into that judgment forever so that that judgment and the experience of it becomes the eternal experience. It sounds harsh. It doesn't sound like the the spirit of our age, and and yet there's still this part of us that wants to see justice done. We, We want to see wrongdoers punished. The problem is that's all of us. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying justice will be done, and wrongdoers will be punished, and God's wrath against sin and rebellion will be satisfied. We know Him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and the Lord will judge his people in verse 30. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Whatever your view of God, the the view of the creator of the universe, the, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, if it does not include this, this righteous anger towards sin, it is not the biblical view of God. For God is a God of vengeance, and to fall into his hands, guilty with our own sin, is a terrible thing. And the writer points out that under the old covenant, anyone who sinned deserved death. How much worse then will it be someone who tramples underfoot the Son of God, profaning the blood of the covenant? So we need to hear this and first just do a reality check on our view of God. Is this the God that you know? And if so, what do we do about that? What makes him so angry at sin? Particularly in this case, the writer of the Hebrews is saying, People who go on sinning, if we go on sinning after coming to a knowledge of the truth, there is no more a sacrifice for sins. Sin is what God is angry about because he is holy. But it means he has also provided a way of escape from his wrath because he has given his son. If we have come to a knowledge of the truth and come to know that Jesus is the Savior and that he is the one who has taken the wrath of God so that we don't have to, and then we walk away from that and say, I don't care. It doesn't matter. That has no value to me. What is left? There is only one mediator between God and man, 
There is only one Savior. God lovingly provides a way to escape the fury of his judgment towards sinful rebellion by sacrificing his son to save repentant sinners like you and me. And the gospel of Jesus makes no sense apart from this wrath of God. Jesus died for nothing if God is not a God of justice. So why would people experience God's wrath? Because some would go on sinning deliberately after coming to know those things about Jesus. People have come to say, yes, I, I get what you're saying. Jesus is the Savior that God has provided. I reject it. I don't care. I have no interest in it. It means nothing to me. I know what it means to be a Christian. I've been part of the fellowship, maybe. I, I've, I've heard and even understood God's word, and I turn away from it, and I repudiate it, and I, I just don't care. I want what I want. I don't want Jesus. They've trampled underfoot the Son of God and regarded as something profane or unclean, the blood of the covenant. And they have insulted the spirit of grace. So what that tells me is this doesn't just mean any sin because then there's no grace. If this is about just anyone who sins as a follower of Jesus, where's the grace if there's nothing but a fearful anticipation of judgment? No, the Holy Spirit is the one who is grace-giving, the one who gives grace to sinners to bring us to repentance and to assure us of God's forgiveness. But if we reject that, we are offending God's Holy Spirit. It means in, in some way we've, people have come to experience the grace of God in their lives. They've seen it. They know that it's good. They were influenced by it, but begin to turn it into a license, an excuse to do whatever they want, to justify their love of sinning and eventually move away from God and say, I don't care what God wants. Just as Paul writes in Romans, shall we go on sinning now that we have been purchased by Christ? God forbid, he says. Some of you may be familiar with the French playwright and philosopher Voltaire, who lived in the 18th century. He was a skeptic and a cynic and a doubter, never professed any faith, was a critic of the gospel and the church and organized religion. And near the end of his life, someone asked him, what are you going to do when you die? What, aren't you afraid to see God? And he said, no, not at all. God will forgive me. That's his job. That's the attitude that the writer is warning us against. God has not provided Jesus to just be a machine to spit out forgiveness so that we can go on living and sinning any way we want. And you may say, well, it doesn't happen around here. That's not something we need to worry about. Maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe you don't know many people or any people that have made such a rejection of Christ, having come to know him. But I will tell you that I know there are Christians who are thinking of rejecting their faith, of turning back, because I want something more than I want Jesus, or it's just gotten hard. My life would be easier if I went back to the way it was before. Beware, the writer is saying. 
There's nothing more serious and more significant and more dangerous and more eternally important than what we do with Jesus Christ and how we respond to his grace. The warning is don't play around with sin. Don't presume that because God loves me, I can live however I want and it won't make any difference. And we'll come back to that later. So, so what do we do with that? Because the good news is that the writer doesn't assume that that's true of these people. Look at what he goes on to say. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, being partners with those who were treated that way. You had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. These are evidences that the writer brings out of true, enduring faith that is prompted by the work of God's gracious Holy Spirit in their lives. Remember the past, he says. Be reminded, be encouraged by how you've seen God give evidence of his work in your life and and head back in that direction if you're tempted to go the other way. Be encouraged, he says, by the evidence that's in your life of of the work that God is doing. Joey and I had an opportunity at the beginning of this last week, Monday to Wednesday, to be out in Colorado for a pastor's conference. And uh, Tuesday morning, I got this really nice text from Amelia. She said, uh, I'm missing you. Hope you're having a great time. Just wanted to let you know, I really appreciate all the work that you do for us around the house in the mornings because I've been late for work the last two days. Like, ah, it's, it's nice to be wanted. It's not exactly at the level that the writer of Hebrews is saying here, but it makes me want to give and serve more, doesn't it? The encouraging reminder of how God has worked in my life to love and serve my wife makes me want to do that more. Look at what the writer here brings out in their lives. They faced public ridicule and persecution. It's, it's become shameful or embarrassing to be identified with Jesus in, in their context. They, they've come to see and treasure Jesus for who he is, and they love the Lord and his word, and, and yet they've experienced some difficulty. Maybe it was a physical cost. He, he mentions affliction here and suffering and reproach. They identified themselves with Jesus and And there was a social or relational cost because it wasn't cool to follow Jesus. They were considered outcasts, undesirables. And and they intentionally went out of their way to be identified with the weak and the vulnerable and the people that everyone else looked down on. People in prison identifying themselves with people who were subject to reproach and shame. They were willing to sit with the uncool kids in the cafeteria. They they were willing to be identified with the people that our society looks down on as less valuable and less worthy because of following Jesus. And they joyfully accepted the confiscation or plundering. They sound like pirates are in here somehow. They had things taken from them. Literally, there was a cost a financial cost of following Jesus. Now, now, maybe we don't experience that. Maybe we will in the future. But I think of missionaries or people in vocational ministry who have 
decided I'm going to make 50% less than I could out in the corporate world for the sake of following Christ and his mission. Or people who continue to work in jobs that they're really not that excited about for the sake of being a witness for Christ in how they do their work and providing for their families. There's a cost to following Jesus. And yet these people accepted it joyfully. Did you see that? Knowing in the end of verse 34 that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Joy in being ridiculed and rejected and in pain and financially in a lower station. Because there's a greater reality that has captured their hearts. I think about some of what David Casale shared. I mean, here's a man who left a role as a seminary president to head back to a war-torn country to try and build something from the ground up and, and now has been dealing with an Ebola outbreak and militias killing people in their community. And yet he's joyful about it. What if we were people like that? Instead of, you know, like how I can be sometimes boy, I didn't like what happened in my life, and so it's easy for me to grumble and complain about it. Or I didn't like what those people said or what they said about me or the people that I identify with, so I'm going to go online and you know, tell them what I think of them with sarcasm and hostility and condescension. No. Joyfully identified with Jesus in, in a way that opened up their hearts to the weak and the vulnerable and the needy and didn't care if it meant they were considered uncool and on the outside because they're seeing something bigger. You see, God knows. God cares. God understands. God provides in all these things. Where did the strength and the, and the grace and the kindness and the love to do these kinds of things come from? Not from themselves, not from me, not from you. It's, it's from God. Jesus is the one who comes to live in us to help us live this way. It's not natural. It's, it's what God does. And, and so the writer is saying, look, remember, look back and be encouraged of the ways that God has helped and saved and changed and grown you and provided for you and cared for you and protected you and strengthened you. Sometimes when we're weak and we're tired and we're tempted, we're going through a hard time, it's easy to just see everything that's wrong. And we forget all that is right and good. We forget how faithful God has been. We forget the evidences of his work in our lives. We forget the good things that he's doing in us, maybe even in the middle of that struggle and trial. This is a reminder. Pay attention to what God says about you. Pay attention to what God is doing in you and through you and encourage each other in that. That's why the writer has just told us, don't give up meeting together, but keep encouraging one another daily. Get together to remind each other of God's goodness and faithfulness and the, and the work that he's doing it, because it's worth it. That's the, the last thing. What helps us endure when it's hard, and maybe we're even encouraged right now, but the promise seems far off? We're 
finally in the last stages of pulling together all the details for uh, our oldest daughter Jackie's wedding coming up in just under four weeks. And uh, man, it's a little easier to be excited four weeks out than it was four months out because there's all the stress and the planning and the expense and the details and the craziness and, and you really start to wonder, is it worth it? Why do we go through this? Because there's a hope. There's a future hope. Not just that there's a day on the calendar when it's all going to come together and we're going to celebrate. But there's a hope of a new life together that this is all about. I think that's why marriage and a a wedding feast is such a common picture of the future reality of God's people. There is a future hope that keeps us going in the middle of of all the craziness and the difficulty of life. That's why the writer says, don't throw away your confidence in verse 35. Don't throw away your confidence. Your confidence in what? That it's all going to be great, that life's going to work out, that I'm going to get it all figured out, that I'm going to be so great? No, no, your confidence has great reward because our confidence is in Christ. Jesus is our confidence because Jesus is the reward. So the difference between professing Christ and possessing Christ, someone said. I can know all kinds of things about Jesus. I can believe all kinds of things that are true about Jesus. I can profess him with my mouth, but do I really have him? Does he have me? Does he have my heart? Is my heart oriented towards a future hope of glory with Jesus? Do not throw away your confidence because, listen, we are not of those, in verse 39, who shrink back, who turn away, who throw away our confidence and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Because this better possession and a lasting one is Jesus. It's eternity with Him. Heaven is only the ultimate extension of the life and the joy and the hope and the peace that we get a down payment of here. Heaven is the ultimate eternity of living in the glory and the beauty and the wholeness of Christ when all the sin is gone and all the suffering is wiped away. And God promises, I won't even remember the sins anymore. They are gone forever. We have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay. I know it seems like it's hard, and Jesus is far off maybe, but he is not slow concerning his promise. Knowing that, holding on to that hope is the key to endurance. It's a deep confidence about our future that frees us from fear and the need to grasp and hold on and make things work out the right way and turns us into people who can love and live by faith in the God that we are waiting to see. We have to remind each other continually how terrible the price is of turning away from Jesus and throwing away that confidence. Remind each other 
how great the reward is of cherishing the, the glory, the reward of Christ above all things. To focus on the preciousness of the promises of Christ and help one another see that they are more valuable, better, and lasting than anything that, that would lead us astray. So what does the Bible say to a Christian or anyone hearing me who says, maybe it's not worth following Jesus? Well, first we need to hear that warning. If we reject Christ and say, I, I don't care that he died for me, it doesn't make any difference, it's not going to impact how I live, yeah, if you want to send me to heaven someday, that's fine, but I'm going to live how I want here and now. The writer of the Hebrews is saying, you are in a terrible danger. But he says, I'm confident of better things for you, because you may be thinking that way, but I know better things will happen for you. You are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. Do not throw away the confidence that you have in Christ. Can a Christian lose his salvation? That's, that's a question that passages like these raise. For us, what, what if I've sinned now this time and Jesus is finally going to turn his back on me? Let me say, if you're concerned about the answer to that question, you haven't sinned in a way that separates you from Jesus. If you care about the answer to that question, you're in a good place. Can I be saved and lose my salvation and then saved and lose my salvation over and over and over again? Well, Jesus is inviting us to eternal life. So if it's something I can lose, that's I probably wasn't holding on to something eternal in the first place. I tend to rest on these promises that those who really love and belong to Jesus, God will bring to completion. That all those that the Father has given to the Son, He will bring home and the Son will raise them up on the last day. The Father who has begun a good work in you will see it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. But it is useful to hear these warnings. Because it's good for us to be reminded, don't head down that path. Don't go near it. And not everyone who hears this warning really is a follower of Jesus. And this needs to confront some of you who are hearing me. Do I know that I am a follower of Jesus? Do I know that Jesus is my Lord and Savior? Where are you at this moment? Do you need the grace of a warning, an encouragement and reminder, strength for progress in pursuing Jesus, the confidence of a future hope, all of them maybe? Keep the grace of God before you in his warning, his encouragement, and his hope as we continue to follow Jesus, who is our confidence. Let's pray. Father, it's hard in some ways to say thank you for frightening passages like this. But we do thank you for your word. The challenge, the reminder, the encouragement that we have in you and in the gospel. And Father, I know there are some hearing me who are perhaps tender-hearted. And I pray, Father, that this would not lead to introspection or doubt of your faithfulness and your commitment to finish what you have begun. Father, I know there are some who are hearing who are hard-hearted and are not even concerned. 
Father, I pray by your spirit you would work to humble and convict and help us to see our need of Jesus. Father, for all of us, that's what we need. Give us Jesus' hope, Jesus' encouragement, Jesus' confidence that we can endure and see Jesus face to face with joy. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.